0: ID The Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I am your ever diligent host for this podcast, Robert J. Marks. Naturalism has a rough time explaining some of the incredible properties of the world in which we live. In biology, irreducible complexity is an example. How do we explain complexity that fails when a single component of a complex biological system is removed? It's kind of like the game of Jenga, where removal of any single block in the stack sends the whole stack of blocks just crashing down. Similarly, how do we how do these interdependent components of biology that we see and observe every day combine themselves into a single complex system, an irreducibly complex system? There are other biological features that naturalists have a difficult time with. Uh, they have a difficult time explaining them. Our guest today, Eric Castle, has added another important item to this list, specifically animal algorithms. To survive and flourish, animals follow algorithms. Algorithms are step-by-step procedures to accomplish something. All computer programs follow algorithms. Algorithms. Animals are pre-programmed to follow algorithms. They are born with these algorithms in their heads. If insects have heads, I guess they do. In his new book, Animal Algorithms, Eric asks, uh, where do all these algorithms embedded in animals come from? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Eric, welcome. Thanks again, Bob. Good to be with you. Yeah, Eric, I got to tell you, I did like your book. So uh, it's fun to talk to you about it. And dig deeper into some of these topics. Look, to write an algorithm, there has to be a foundation of information on which to build. What is the source of that information in animal algorithms? So that, that's the sort of
1: fundamental question about uh, this particular topic. There's a general problem with evolutionary theory in trying to explain the origin of information As we know, there's a lot of information that goes into, for example, building and developing an individual animal or other type of organism. So um, the the information, for example, includes how to build the how do you build the body, how do you how do you construct the the brain of an animal, things like that. So there there's a lot of information involved in all of that, and there's been a lot of research that's gone into those kinds of aspects of animal development. The the aspect that I'm addressing more specifically has to do with these the behaviors that are the subject of, of the book. And this particular aspect actually has, I believe, a little bit more of a challenge uh, than maybe the physical development of an organism. Because as you indicate, What we're talking about here are actually algorithms that control the behavior. And as we talked about in the previous podcast, many of these algorithms are quite sophisticated and obviously involve a lot of information that is embedded within the animal in some way and actually is is used by the animal in controlling these behaviors. So again, the question is, where does this information come from The process of standard Darwinian evolution, again, is one of random variation, mutations, and natural selection. But there's been a lot of work done that showed that that, in fact, is an inadequate explanation for um, the origin of this kind of information. There's a a concept called this no free lunch theorem that um, William Dembski has talked about and written about quite a bit and he his uh, research uh, and analysis has shown how it, it's really difficult or near impossible to generate new information through these r- purely random kinds of processes a, a lot of uh, good information and analysis of that topic is contained in a book called Evolutionary informatics
0: yeah which is a great which is a great book yes. <laughs>
1: I agree, and uh, since you were one of the co-authors of that book, uh, I'd ask you to maybe explain that a little bit more.
0: Well, let me talk about no free lunch. Uh, there, there, there was an astonishing paper published in 1997 by Wolpert and McCready, and it was published in the IEEE Transactions on Evolutionary Programming. And uh, Walpert and McCready kind of ah, they, they 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 toppled a big area in, in design. Uh, it used to be, well, if you think about it, design itself is an iterative process. I like to use things like um, WD-40. Why do they call it WD-40? It's called WD-40 because it took 40 tries for the industrial chemist to come up with the final solution. Same thing with Formula 409. Formula 409 took 409 experiments before they, they got it right. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it, d- design is search. And you have to bring expertise into the search process, into the design process. If the people doing WD-40, I think the guy's name was Larson. If he hadn't been an industrial chemist, and they had given this problem to somebody with no domain expertise, like uh, I don't know, a high school chemistry student, we would be using not WD forty, but WD one million two hundred sixty three thousand. It, it it's just it's just that domain expertise is incredibly important in design. Anyway, getting back to Walbert and McCready's original paper 1997 uh, they called it the no free lunch they weren't the inventors of it but they were certainly the popularizers of it but they they came up with this idea that if you have no domain expertise if you don't know what you're talking about that one technique of of searching of doing the design is as good as any other this is this is just this is just astonishing and this means that if you do just random search Uh, random search is blind search where you know nothing. eh, That's as good as any other search on average. There's a movie called UHF (laughs) that starred Weird Al Yankovic. He was was the only star of it. And there's this one short scene where a blind man, we know he's blind because he's sitting on a uh, on a park bench with glasses, dark glasses and a cane and he has a Rubik's cube and there's a sighted guy next to him and, and the blind guy gives a little twist to the Rubik's cube and shows it to the other guy and he says is this it and the sighted guy looks at it and he says nope and then the blind guy gives it another twist and he looks at it and the sighted guy looks at it and he says is this it and the guy says nope that is a that is an example of blind search and the fact that they used a blind man to do it is very appropriate And in order to get a result, in order to get a design, you can't use blind search. It just takes too long. That's the reason that the blind guy is never, ever going to solve that Rubik's cube by just saying, is this it? No. Is this it? No. He has to have some sort of domain expertise to figure out what that Rubik's cube is going to do. And so, In every design that we see, and that includes insect algorithms and and other things, there has to be an infusion of a designer with domain expertise in order to guide the process. When we see incredible designs that uh, Eric Castle is talking about in insect uh, swarms and just in general in animal algorithms, we have to address the question, Where did it come from? It can't have just originated by random chance. You can't have, is this it? No. Is this it? No. Is this a good social algorithm, social uh, swarm algorithm? No, you can't do that. You have to have domain expertise. And this is the evidence for design. And both Eric and I are have degrees in electrical engineering. We have design stuff, and we know design when we see it. And uh, you have to have that domain expertise in order to have sophisticated design. So, Eric, how'd I do?
1: That was a great explanation. I appreciate that, and I really like your analogy of the, the Rubik's cube. <laughs> that's, that, that's a really good
0: analogy analogy i i do use that little clip in some of the talks that i get you know the guy is saying is this it no is this it no and the guy's going to be there forever <laughs> So you mentioned that many of these algorithms that you're talking about in terms of social insects and animals in general, they're pretty complex, and they're analogous to computer software programs. Imagine writing a computer software program to do something. You type something randomly on the keyboard, you hit run, and when you hit run, you ask, is this it? No, this isn't the algorithm. So you type something else, which is random, and then you hit you hit the key and you say, is this it? No, it isn't. It'd take you one heck of a long time to come up with the algorithm to do anything using that process, using domain expertise. You have to know what you're doing. You have to figure out your expertise and you have to incorporate that expertise, that information into the, uh, the algorithm. So, so what do you think about all this, uh, Eric, uh, in terms of animal algorithms? I guess I guess you're saying it applies there too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's directly analogous. And so there's act- I, I think there's actually two problems. Uh, one is the development of the, uh, of the algorithm, as you indicate, just trying to develop an algorithm or a similar computer software program in such a manner. Uh, for those of us that have written computer programs, I mean, it seems almost impossible you could ever even do that, particularly for something that's highly complex. But the other aspect of it uh, that I think gets overlooked is the fact that even if, if, even if you actually are able and somehow to start off with a functioning algorithm or program, if you have all of these random um, variations or mutations going on in, in the genome, well, almost always, whenever you have a, a, a mutation, it's going to degrade the algorithm. It's not going to provide uh, improved functionality or um, or some new functionality. And almost, all, it's almost inevitable that it actually degrades the, prog- the the algorithm. And that's actually what has been found when scientists research um, mutations in, in genetics. Is that for the most part, these mutations actually degrade. The, in some cases, it's proteins or whatever the, the gene might, um, uh, functionality might be, it's more degradatory than, than helping. And so that is really a major problem for, for things like these algorithms that control behaviors. Because <clears throat> let's just take an example. In the case of, um, again, these large social colonies of insects <clears throat> that involve a, a number of algorithms. And a number of different aspects of behavior. If you have some random mutations going on, and it, the, the algorithm gets changed, and in other words, the behaviors get changed. Well, it's much more likely than not that such a change is going to be degradatory to the to the organism to the to the colony, because the ant the animals would be engaging in behaviors that are either the wrong behaviors, or or the behaviors at the wrong time. So in other words, let's just take one case. Something changed about um, when the animals, uh, let's say honeybees, go out to forage for food. Well, if something changes in that algorithm, and these and the honeybees fail to go forage for the food. The colony is going to die. And so. That's why I'm saying more often than not, some kind of a process where you're having these random mutations and the algorithm ends up changing in some way, much more often than not, that's going to be detrimental to the colony. Again, that's that's something that's hard to square with a process that involves some random process um, and selection. And presuming that that's going to result in optimization, well, in some cases, maybe it, there's certain aspects of it that might do that, where if there's some kind of a change in the algorithm or the behavior that's detrimental, that, you know, maybe in some cases that gets selected out. But for the most part, they're not beneficial and it's hard to see how such a process can actually result in um, optimization of these behaviors or algorithms.
0: We see, for example, the, the, the lofting of the importance of, of mutation in the process of Darwinian evolution. Uh, but you do not see pregnant mothers lining up at the doctors and saying, will you please mutate my baby? <laughs> that, is, that is not something which is going to happen. Uh, right. So, you know, you have, to, you have to bring it down to practical application. Also, what you're talking about is a topic which is covered, I believe, in Michael Behe's new book, which is Darwin Devolves, which is that we're not getting better and better, we're getting worse. And this was a premise which was put forward by John Sanford earlier in his book, Genetic Entropy which says that the genome is getting more and more random, and we see more inheritable diseases today and inheritable uh, conditions today than we ever have because we're keeping on mutating and and we're devolving, just exactly like you're saying, Eric.
1: Yeah, and that's right. That's one of the, to me, one of the major um, takeaways from Behe's research where it's, it's showing that even in some cases where there's there are genetic changes going on or mutations and in some cases they might be beneficial to a, an organism in, in the short term in fact what the the, the benefit comes from a, a gene that it's broken it actually it's a broken gene that in some ways they may be beneficial result in something beneficial to the to the animal but really it's 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 because the gene broke, not because it in, actually improved the the gene or in, in improved the overall genome in some way or uh, developed some new new characteristic. that's that's not what goes on for the most
0: part. okay, let's let's talk about the um, another aspect of animal algorithms, and that's that's a concept named convergence. I'm familiar with Simon Conway Morris's pioneering work in the concept of convergence in the history of animal development. Talk talk about convergence as it applies to animal algorithms.
1: So yeah, convergence is this term that um, evolutionary theorists apply to characteristics that appear in animals that are actually unrelated. In other words, there's no common ancestry. So it could be some physical characteristic, or in cases what I'm talking about are largely behaviors that appear in animals that have no direct ancestry relationship. And so it present that does present a problem for Darwinian evolution, being that how does such a characteristic appear um, in these different groups of species that are not related in any way? So there's a problem of, okay, if it's a low probability event of these genetic changes occurring in the first place, what's the likelihood of them happening in completely unrelated populations or species? So that's been a problem for evolutionary theory. One of the explanations that's been used in some cases, and it does make some sense, is in in this part of evolutionary theory called evo-devo, where a good example might be certain physical characteristics, like, for example, bird wing design. We know that there is, based on research that was done in developing airplanes, we know there's a lot of constraints in how you construct a wing. So that actually constrains how, that, how those wings could be designed in birds. So the idea then is that in the process of evolution, because of these constraints, when you have birds developing wings with certain characteristics and these bird populations or species are completely unrelated, well, it may be because there are a lot of, there's these constraints, these physical constraints in how design can even occur in the first place or being functional. So that's somewhat of a plausible explanation that you could apply to things like that. The same idea would apply to, for example, fish fins. Mm -hmm. That does actually not work for many of the things that I've addressed in the book. For example, these navigation systems or sensors that animals employ, the different kinds of compasses, for example, and other kinds of navigation sensors, there really aren't the same kind of um, physical design constraints or reasons why... Uh, an animal would develop a certain kind of navigation sensor. Right. It's it, that analogy just doesn't work. For example, with wing uh, bird wings, that means that these the, these designs that are used for navigation, for example, are really kind of contingent. They're not deterministic. There's nothing driving a certain kind of design or the even the use of a certain sensor. And as we've seen, animals employ a number of different kinds of sensors in different ways, and some animals use one sensor, two sensors, three sensors, and other animals use others. But there's a lot of commonality that appear in animals, again, that are completely unrelated, no common ancestry, but they're using similar kinds of navigation sensors and systems. So, again, that begs the question, where does that come from? What? Why would that even be the case? My thesis is that's a, it's a more plausible explanation that there's common design going on, yeah, rather than some sort of evolutionary explanation based on this notion of convergence. Same thing applies to, for example, the social behavior, where um, the the big the biggest groups of animals that uh, insects that engage in these social colonies are ants, bees, and termites. In many cases, the behaviors of these animals in these colonies are very similar. They're not identical, but there's a lot of commonality in these behaviors. And again, they appear in groups of animals that are completely unrelated, no common ancestry. So how does that occur through an evolutionary
0: process that's
1: difficult to explain, much easier to explain through a common design?
0: Well, this is a problem which is amplified by Simon Conway Morris's work. Now, you're talking about the existence of similar behavior in different species like ants and bees and termites. Uh, Simon Conway Morris was looking at the similarity that happens when you have these geographically separated animals. There might be, I don't remember the specifics, but there might be an animal in uh in South America and another one in Japan who have never had the chance of biologically interacting and they have the same sort of, uh, same sort of DNA, same sort of attributes, even though they are geographically separated and, and couldn't have been in the same evolutionary chain, if you will. Right. So yeah, this, this enforces that this is very, this is very interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, so- something interesting in this, you know, naturalists, uh, they contend that evolution has no goal, that evolution, you're always looking at your toes. Evolution is always looking at your toes, wherein I, I think um, it's more reasonable to assume that there is a teleology, that is, that there's a goal which is being pursued. Now, you address this in your book, so let's talk about uh, teleology as related to animal algorithms.
1: Yes, yeah, so this is a, um, sort of a more of a philosophical issue, uh, and maybe a higher level issue that arises, particularly with many of the aspects of behaviors that, uh, that I've been addressing. If you go back into the history of ant, um, scientists looking at ant, uh, the world as we see it, particularly organisms and animals, um, Aristotle had a, had a concept that involved a certain version of teleology. Um, so that was actually a kind of a dominant view for quite a long time until closer to the period of um, Darwin and the d- development of evolutionary theory. And subsequent to that, many of the defenders of the evolutionary view basically assert that the concept of teleology or purpose really shouldn't be part of science and doesn't play a role in, ex- in explaining this. I'm, I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins, Michael Ruse, Jerry Coyne, uh, people like that. That That's the, the strong point of view that they have, that basically you can't infer purpose or teleology in aspects of, in this case, animal behavior. I use a term in the, the book that I, I refer to, the people that take that point of view, they have kind of a teleophobia, meaning that they have an aversion to the the admitting that there's an existence of design or a final cause in nature, which again kind of gets back to Aristotle's original theory. But I think when you examine the behaviors that are described in, in the book, in almost every case you can find that there's a lot of evidence for purpose or goals. So just to take one aspect of this as an example, again, in these social colonies, when you look at the, particularly the ones that are considered superorganisms, you have a higher level functionality of the colony. There's something that's determining some higher level functionality that then drives all of the individual behaviors that the, in this case, insects engage in. So something is setting some higher level goal or purpose and all of the functions that go on within the colony are supporting that higher level goal or purpose. And there's plenty of evidence to say that that's the case and the same thing could be said about many of the other kinds of behaviors that I talk about. That kind of higher level goal or purpose fits more within a, a, a design point of view than it does, again, with the Darwinian view now, where the Darwinian evolutionists are saying, you can't even admit that that's a case. You, you can't even uh, account, try to account for the fact that there might be some higher level purpose to these behaviors because it's just totally c- uh, contrary to Darwinian evolution. So that's kind of the fundamental problem that's being dealt
0: with. You know, in terms of teleology, when I was learning to drive, the first thing my dad told me, he says, don't look where you're at. Don't look over the hood. Look at where you're going. And that's the only way to drive. I think that most new drivers are told that. Yogi Berra has has a great saying. He says, if you don't know where you are going, you will never get there. So uh, this this is the this, this is the problem with uh, uh, teleology and and having a goal uh, being defined as opposed to just looking at at your toes all the time.
1: And the and the other thing, uh, just to pick up on that, that um, is interesting to me as an engineer from an engineering perspective. When you look again at many of the the baby behaviors and systems that we we've talked about. There's significant evidence of engineering. And when you do engineering, you you definitely have goals and purposes for how you're designing something, Yes. Um, whether it be some physical mechanism or behavior. There's there's a a construct there that the engineer has in mind. Okay, this is the purpose. This is the function that I want to design this thing to do. So that's, again, evidence that there's, there is some higher level purpose involved in how these systems or behaviors are
0: designed. Thanks, Eric. You know, this has been a, a great and wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed this time with you. Let me, let me summarize the points, I think, as, as you have made them. Uh, the source of the algorithms in animals requires an explanation. Where does this come from? It can't be from a blind search. Is this it? No. Is this it? No. Can't come from that. Where did the information for all of these algorithms come from? And why is there convergence? Why do we see similar aspects among different species and among geographically separated species? That um, why, why, why do we see such commonality there if there is no teleological aspect of their design? These And other things and fascinating things are addressed in Eric Castle's new book, Animal Algorithms, published by Discovery Press. I have read it, I endorse it, and it's fun and an informative read. So please get get a copy if this this sort of stuff interests you. So until next time, be of good cheer. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.